Have you ever wondered what the most effective way of learning something is? As parents, we're often confronted with situations where our teens will tell us, I just don't know how to, or I'm just no good at remembering this stuff. From our own experiences too, we might find that we'll recall some things very easily, like the rhyme about Henry VIII's wives, for example, but other things will slip through or just be harder to grasp, the names of the wives, or in my case, what my wife's told me we're doing next weekend. But is there a way that we can help our young people, and possibly ourselves, to better recall the information that we've learned? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy, and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering the kinds of topics that young people up and down the country will be facing. So if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at retrieval practice. This is a phrase that's being used quite a lot by teachers and educators, but many of us parents may not have come across it. Today's guest defines it as the act of recalling learned information from memory and in doing so, make the original memory stronger. I'm absolutely delighted to be talking with Kate Jones today. Kate is Head of History at the British School in Abu Dhabi. Kate is also the author of the highly acclaimed Retrieval Practice, and excitingly is soon releasing Retrieval Practice 2. If that weren't enough, she regularly speaks at international educational conferences, provides training to educators the world over, and has a podcast, The Love to Teach all while she manages her dedicated teaching and learning blog, lovetoteach87.com. For many students, half-term is upon us. And that's a week, or maybe two, where students can unwind after what has been an incredibly hard start for many. But our students, like those all over the country, are also aware that there's a lot of catching up to do. This week, Scarlett was talking about planning out her two-week break, and she's planning it very carefully. She's maintaining some of the structure from school in the mornings and then building in time to relax in the afternoon. Something I found particularly interesting with Scarlett is that she's constantly looking at new ways of working to make sure that the work she's doing is efficient. I found this year that I've actually really liked using revision cards in science. Uh, We have our equations that we have to learn. I made my revision cards and then every day we get tested on the equations but before we get five minutes to just go through the flashcards with a friend. Kate, it's obviously important that students take time for themselves to to recharge but do you think it's important too that students take this time to do some revision as opposed to leaving it until we get closer to exams? Yeah, it's incredibly important and I do agree with you fully that students do need to take the time to relax, uh, enjoy themselves, spend time with friends and family. Their well-being is incredibly important. But actually revising and studying effectively, this can also help with their well-being in many ways as it will boost their confidence. And we know it's been really well documented that cramming is not an effective study strategy. 
so leaving all of the revising and studying to Sunday when you're back in school on the Monday, that is creating a high pressure situation. And I know you've had a previous guest, Dylan Willem, where he spoke about refreshers and little and often. So working smarter instead of harder and longer, it would be a really good idea for the students to have a timetable that they loosely keep to this flexibility in half term where they space out their subjects and their study. So they mix it up. It's tempting to say, I'm going to do two hours of maths this day, and then I will do an hour of English and an hour of history on this day and chunk it all together. And that's what I did. And that seems more organized and that it would flow better. But actually, we should be doing shorter sessions of study. And instead of blocking subjects or topics, we need to mix it up. And that really does go against our our instincts because it feels a little bit messy and unorganized. But this is what the research tells us works. This is good advice that students and parents should be mindful of when they're planning their half-term revision. And also how they revise over half-term is incredibly important as well. It's probably a temptation to reread notes, highlight, underline all the old strategies that students have done for many years, myself included, but they are not the most effective study strategies. The most effective that research is overwhelming is retrieval practice, self-testing, practice testing, and spaced practice, distributed practice, spacing that out. Because if you take, for example, highlighting your notes, you don't know if you can recall that information or not. And I like to give the analogy about the actor, an actor who would learn his lines. And I appreciate learning isn't about rote memorization like lines, but let's just use this analogy. An actor wouldn't just highlight their lines and then think, oh, I know my lines. They have to rehearse them. They have to recall them. They would have somebody help them. And when they're recalling their lines, the the lines that they can record quickly and with ease, they can remember them from long-term memory. And then the lines that they're struggling with, it's identified what they need to work on. And that's how we can apply it to studying and revision. By self-testing, it will show students what they know and it will show them what they don't know yet. So by identifying these gaps in knowledge, the students can then direct their future revision to those gaps. Because another temptation is to focus our revision on the topics that we enjoy the most. And I think I was guilty of this in history. There were certain periods and events that I found just more interesting. But actually, if I'd mastered that quite confidently in terms of recall, I should then be dedicating time and effort to the areas that I can't recall as easily. You talk there about about rehearsing the analogy with the actor. And I'm really interested, and I know that your book, your book, um, The Retrieval Factors, does cover this, looking at the research that other people have done and sort of really brought it all together. I wonder if you could explain to us how how memory works. How memory works. Well, (laughs) that is a book in itself. But memory is so important. It basically... We wouldn't function without memory. If you think about wake up in the morning, we remember to brush our teeth. We remember how to brush our teeth. Everything that we do is is driven by memory. So it is something that teachers need to be aware of. Students, parents 
how much we need to be aware of in terms of the psychology, I think that's debatable. But I, w- I will give you a good sort of overview of memory, which I think is useful for, for students and parents to have and teachers uh, are becoming much more familiar with the research available to us. So we have a multi-store model of memory, which was actually from 1968. So this is not new information that I'm sharing with you today, but it basically has three stages. The sensory store, that's the stage right at the beginning with attention and encoding. We can't retrieve information from long-term memory if we haven't got the information into our long-term memory. So the encoding stage is incredibly important. Then we have what was previously referred to as short-term memory, although uh, Badley and Hitch later felt that this description of short-term memory was a little bit too simplistic, so they referred to it as working memory. But either way, short-term memory, working memory is very limited in the amount of information we can hold at one time, both in the duration and the capacity. So in terms of Uh, how much information Miller wrote in 1956 about the magic number seven and it could be give or take two so that could be we could hold seven items of information at one point which I'm sure people listening will probably relate to because you're in a situation where there's so much going on and then you forget something because you've can only hold so much in your in your short-term working memory. For example, if you go into a room to get something and you forgot why you went into that room, what was it I was looking for? You've obviously got too much going on in, in your working memory. But we need to get information from that that is limited and limited in the items. But in regards to duration, Peterson and Peterson suggested it was about 18 to 30 seconds. And if it's not rehearsed, it'll be forgotten. So we need to to keep having this repeated exposure to material. And then through doing this repeated exposure and the encoding and understanding, we need to transfer that information to the long-term memory, which in terms of how much information we can hold and store in there, we don't have answers. I can't say a, a time figure or amount because it's unlimited. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. But something that el- else that is really important to know about long-term memory is, and this does link in with what Dylan Willem was saying previously, just because a student might not be able to recall something from long-term memory, it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. So I remember having a conversation with my dad and we were talking about places in Europe that I'd travelled. And I think, although I can't remember the exact conversation, but I think it was along the lines of he was trying to remember the capital of Denmark and he just couldn't remember it. And I, for some reason, I couldn't. And we were like, this is so bizarre. We know this. We absolutely know this. And it was really frustrating. And then anyway, we carried on, changed the topic of conversation. And then he went, Copenhagen. (laughs) And it just came to him. And I told my mum about this later. She said, oh, well, you either know something or you don't. I said, well, mum, that's not entirely true. Because if he didn't know that, how was he able to pluck that answer out from his long-term memory? It just took him a while. And there are times where you know something or you don't. And then there's other times where you've probably been in a quiz. And you think, I know the answer. It's on the tip of my tongue. And then when you hear the answer back, you think, oh, 
I knew that. Why couldn't I recall it? So it's important for parents to know that, that they shouldn't panic just because their child can't retrieve something and think, oh, my child doesn't know this. They, they probably do. They just will need more support, some cues, some prompts to help them get there. And then they need further practice so that in the future, they can retrieve that information more quickly and easily. What I really like is thinking about memory. And this is based on the work of Arthur Melton from the 60s, again, a very long time ago, which basically has encoded storage retrieval. We have to get it to the long-term memory, but what's the point if it's in long-term memory, if we can't access it. And then that's what retrieval practice is all about, getting the information out of long-term memory. And hence, we, we do this a lot, so it's retrieval practice. I think it's immediately relatable. I was sat here thinking, I do know the capital of Denmark. I know the capital of Denmark. Fortunately, and I think I got to it a second before you said, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to go with that because this is recorded for prosperity. So but you've absolutely been in that situation, all of those situations. Gone into a room, gone to the fridge even. What did I, yes. What did I come to the fridge for? Walk into the quiz. All of this is, I mean, this is everyday life, isn't it? Absolutely. So how do you get to, is, is there an art form, and obviously we will talk about retrieval, is there an, an art or a skill or something that that helps to encode that information to make it more easily accessible? Or is it a case of, if it's in there, you just need to find out how to get hold of it? So the encoding stage, that's probably where the teachers will take more responsibility. So that's our job as teachers to get that information there. And we can encode information in different ways, visually with images, auditory through sound or semantic meaning with text. That's not learning styles, by the way. If you, you may have heard of something saying learning styles that different children learn differently, that we should have kinesthetic and audio tasks and and no basically there's a lot of research that's debunked that just because you prefer to learn in a specific way doesn't mean that you learn better that way so the example that I often share with my students because they say miss I prefer to learn this way it helps me learn you might prefer it I prefer pizza to apples but apples are better for me so <laughs> a student may prefer highlighting or underlining their work they may like that more and they probably will because how much effort does it take to highlight and underline? It's pretty easy and quick. Whereas in regards to testing yourself, where you're putting yourself in the position where you realize you might not know all of the answers, that requires much more effort. So that's learning styles. That's something completely different. But the way of encoding all the different ways, there's a lot of research that says that children should be exposed to material at least three different times for them to actually understand and grasp the concept. And this is where teachers will do this naturally. An, an explanation, worked examples, consolidation tasks, summarising. You know, the research is very thorough. The work of Graham Nuttall, Barak Rosenshine. This repeated exposure to material. And we have to do this before we can get to the retrieval stage. So this is something that students will be doing in school. And they shouldn't really be doing this in the revision stage. This, When you're studying you should be studying material that you've already covered in class. But then the problem that could potentially arise is that there's been such a long period of time 
between exposure to the material and testing that it's just incredibly difficult to retrieve. So then they will need to have the refreshers. And the strategies of encoding that I mentioned, visual and audio and semantic, well, you can combine two of those strategies at the same time. And this is what we call dual coding. And this is, again, some another strategy that parents and students would really benefit from learning about. But the strategies that we do combine would be a textbook will have written information and images so that that information can go through to the memory in two different channels. And the same with a presentation or a video that I might be delivering. I could deliver a presentation where I'm talking and I have visuals behind me. But what I wouldn't want to do is talk, have information and visuals because the student or the audience members will be reading the text and hearing voice in our heads that when we read and then trying to listen to me and then we're overloaded remember our working memory and how limited it is and we don't want to overload it this is links to cognitive load theory <laughs> so all these theories and strategies are all linked together that's one way of encoding the information another strategy is the chunking of information so my subject history for example if I have a a key topic Treaty of Versailles that I'm teaching, then I will break that down into manageable chunks. So we might look at the causes, the actual events, individuals, effects, rather than looking at it as a whole. And then once students have a good understanding and grasp of those in, those different factors, then we can bring it all together. So chunking is really good. Chunking is something that we do in our lives day to day. If you think about when we don't really have to remember phone numbers anymore because we have a, we have mobile phones. But when I was young, and I'm not that old, but when I was younger and we used to tell each other mobile phone numbers, we'd usually chunk it. We'd usually remember three and then the other three. It, it, we, would, we wouldn't reel it all off as one long number. So we weren't even realizing that we were chunking things to make it more manageable. So repeated exposure, different strategies, and chunking. I am obviously, and I'm going to go even go as far as considerably a modern user. I again remember that with the telephone numbers, although I remember it more with landline numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, and therein lies the difference. But as you say, you'd have your area code, and I can almost in my head hear the, the pattern of numbers. So it's almost lyrical as well, the way that you sort of retain that flow of how you're retrieving, I guess, from the long term memory. With the encoding piece, and as you say, over a, a two or in some cases three-year run-up to GCSEs, there can be quite a long time. And I'm interested in, I suppose it's the effectiveness, and it goes exactly back to what you started by saying about working smarter, not necessarily working longer or even harder, and making sure that the time that's being spent studying or revising is being spent most efficiently. But is there a way in which you can find out, actually, this is encoded enough? Is it by testing yourself that you can say, actually, here's a gap in my knowledge, so I need to go back and re-encode? Or is, it, is there some other way of, of knowing that this is in my long-term memory, now I need to perfect getting hold of it? Well, that's, that is the beauty of retrieval practice, identifying gaps in knowledge. And then it's what you do to then act on those gaps. There's lots of benefits of retrieval practice. There's a really great research paper which focuses on about 10 different strategies because retrieval practice is low stakes. So that means no pressure. It's it's not testing like 
a GCSE exam. It's regular, informal quizzing and testing. And the first benefit is that it really does work. And something that I've learned, and I've been recently speaking to an academic called Paul Kirshner, who's opened my eyes to this, is that I've been telling students, it works, it works. The research says it works. I know it works, but that's not enough. Students have to find out for themselves. And if students persevere and stick with retrieval practice, they will see that. It won't happen overnight because it has to be spaced. But the students and the parents, if they they stick with it, persevere, they will see for themselves that it works. The gaps in knowledge are really useful for the teacher. For me, when I look at a quiz, a set of results, it could be very insightful. I remember recently I, I completed a very informal quiz and I looked online and it gave me a brief overview and there was a question where only two members at the whole class got that correct. I thought, oh, wow, okay, that's really informative for me, for my planning. So then that will shape what I do in future lessons. But if students do a quiz or a test and they get 13 out of 15 and they don't bother to look where they went wrong or where the gaps are, then that's a wasted opportunity. They've got to find out where the gaps are in their knowledge and then they've got to do something about that, address it, which might be refresher, revisit it, and then wait a little while and then test themselves on those things again. This is something that I do now as a teacher for my subject knowledge because I recently had to teach a brand new A-level I've never studied the content before and never taught about it. I thought, actually, I'm banging this retrieval practice drum. I'm going to do it myself. So I read a chapter of a book and as I was, instead of rereading and highlighting, I was creating question and answers as I was going. Then I waited a while and I gave myself the questions. <laughs> I got some wrong, even though I created the quiz myself. But again, that was really useful for me to see the gaps in my knowledge. And then I think, okay, I have to do something about that. Parents knowing where the gaps are in the knowledge is useful as well, because then they can follow that up with their child. They can work with their child in terms of retrieval, whether that's verbal or written. I don't want to say retrieval practice is a silver bullet because there's a lot more <laughs> to learning. I have to quote myself from my book. I said it's one of the, the strongest and sharpest tools in our teaching and learning toolkit uh, and that applies for, for students you know retrieval practice is the key it really is and that's probably why I'm so so passionate talking about it it's one of those things where as someone coming to this new a couple of years ago when my son was doing his and teachers would set him papers so here's a here's a past paper go back and do this past paper and all I could ever think is that he's only testing whether or not he knows the answer to that one question and so if that one question comes up again, or one topic area comes up again, he'll be fine. But of course, exam papers and test papers don't cover an entire syllabus. So how does it help with your broad knowledge to do past papers? Or are we talking about a much broader spectrum of testing and not just mock and these other sort of well, past papers? When it comes to retrieval revision, I do think variety is key. Because flashcards are absolutely brilliant, but they have their limitations. They will help with factual recall, with understanding vocabulary and concepts, but we also have to have the past papers as well. 
But as you've raised a few potential issues with the past papers, and I know Dylan Willem spoke about different types of exam questions and how you can be prepared for a specific question, but then it's the application of knowledge to that to that question, depending on, on what it is. So it really is important to, to not rely on one study strategy. So flashcards, that flashcards can be used badly, by the way, or they can be used really effectively. Um, a flashcard should have a question on one side, answer on the other. For years, I've seen flashcards that are beautiful and just copied information from a textbook. And it's taken that student hours and hours but what are they going to do? Reread. So no, keep it simple, question and answer. But you have to actually either verbally answer or write your answer down. Because what students might do is look at a flashcard, go, yep, I know that, flip it over. Yep, I was correct. They haven't actually retrieved it. So this is where parent can help them as well. My my mum helped me with my history A level with and she's she won't mind me saying this, but she doesn't know anything about the Tudors. <laughs> and she it, it didn't matter because as long as my answer sound did similar to the flashcard, that was okay. And I was verbally retrieving the information. We did the same thing with Jake. He would write up his index cards, as I suspect 90, if not more, percent of the student population will do. They're four by six inch cards, note postcards, writing as much as they can do, yep. various degrees of highlighting going on. And then he'd give us the card. Yep. And then we'd read through, as you say, what I don't know about geography could very happily be written <laughs> on all of his index cards. And, and so you'd read through and you'd sort of create a question with geography or biology. What is, what is this? He'd say, it's that. And we'd go, okay, yep, well done. That's what you've said. So actually it felt like in the end, all we were doing is testing that he'd learned what he thought he had to learn and not necessarily everything because I don't know what I don't know yeah exactly and teachers really need to support students with flashcards because I've encouraged flashcards and something I do encourage is students to start flashcards in September because what happens is come May they try and create flashcards for all of their subjects and all of the topics within their subjects and it's a huge workload stressful situation whereas if you start early do a few flashcards a week per subject then by the time you are in the study zone, when you're trying to revise, you've got the flashcards ready for retrieval. So that's one point, start early. Link to your point as well. When I did say to my students, right, create some flashcards, that was a mistake on my part because I looked at their flashcards and I thought, why are you asking that question? It was the year, what year was somebody born? So you don't need to know that. That won't ever come, that's not relevant. They didn't know that they need explicit guidance and support. And this is where the teachers and the students have to, well, the teachers really have to think very carefully about what it is students need to know. Uh, because at times, of course, in history, I'm in a lesson, I might go a little bit off topic and say an interesting fact. And did you know this? And that sort of happens quite a lot in my subject. But I then have to be very mindful of the fact that actually, do I really want students to know this? Because there's been times when I've told these interesting, funny, or even disgusting stories, and then students have included that in an answer, and I thought, <laughs> oh, no, I didn't want them to remember that. <laughs> but they, that's not, you know, that's, they can't help that. So this is where we need lots of explicit support and guidance. And 
it's really worth the students and the teachers having conversations. I have created flashcards for my students because after seeing those flashcards, I panicked and made them myself and spent about nine hours. <laughs> but that's I wouldn't recommend that for teacher workload. And also students have got to learn to self-test. They've got to learn how to do this. I won't be there for them when they're in university. I won't be able to write their flashcards for them. So actually being able to self-test and know what it is that you need to know and the acceptance that you, you simply cannot learn it all. So what 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 is it that I, I've got to know? That's very difficult, but incredibly important, especially for lifelong learning. So I can create the flashcards for the exam. Here you go, question and answers, use these with your parents. I've done it for you, don't worry. I've I've taken an opportunity away from them though. And in the long term, that's, that's not helping them. So it, it is about coaching them, modeling, showing examples, having conversations. And this is conversations we should have at parents' evening. And, and, and any communication between teachers, students and parents should focus on this. Before I knew any of the terminology, and I'm not suggesting for a second, I know um, the field, but, but one of the things that just struck me as natural was that actually if, if students, if Jake was writing his own flashcards making his own notes that actually that helps as part of that encoding process in the first place because he's not simply reading he's having to do something he's reading and then summarizing and so my expectation I guess was that that's helping to commit it to his memory encoding whereas obviously there are some fantastic resources out there and teachers do do a lot of this great work of here are some flashcards or here's an excel spreadsheet with with the kinds of things that you should be knowing but is it more useful for, as well as you say, for the lifelong learning, that it helps with the encoding process if the students themselves are more engaged and more involved in, in their self-directed learning? If students can create flashcards with questions and answers that are relevant and specific and will promote recall, great. But there are some students, for various reasons, it, difficulties challenges won't won't be able to so when we think about flashcards and if, if the purpose of a flashcard is for retrieval then there's nothing wrong have a look online what's out there what's already made if it's the retrieval process ideally we would like our students to create it and in itself it is a good as you said encoding activity you you are you have the textbook you will be encoding the information you'll be trying to figure out what aspects are really important trying to phrase a question and write the answer so that's wonderful and I'd love to be at that point where my students can do that independently and they probably will take a, a sense of pride in that as well but there are some students who panic when they create their own flashcards and they have doubt and they, oh really I'm not sure it's the same when I've tried peer assessment in, in class where where students have to look at each other's work and give feedback and then they say but miss you will look at it as well <laughs> because like, I don't trust him <laughs> I want you to look at it as well. So it's almost like, I don't trust myself with these flashcards. Can you just check them for mm. me? So it's, it is a difficult question. I think we ultimately should be encouraging students to do it themselves, but we also have to just give that explicit guidance and modelling. But it seems like then if they're not at that point where they can, so maybe GCSEs is a, a stage 
too early to be doing those own kinds of things if they can't discern between the key facts that might be required for the exams and anecdotal stuff that came up in the lesson. Then maybe later on they can do that when it comes to A-levels. Certainly if they were going on to degrees, you'd expect that, that they'd be trying to discern this for themselves. And from what you've said, the flashcards work as a way of, of helping to identify the gaps and to promote the retrieval of the information. And so if there were gaps, then presumably there are other ways in which the students could go back and re-encode, refresh and rehearse the information that was taught before. And that might be mind maps or posters or actually one of the great things that we heard about recently was where the student had identified that they didn't know something. So, for example, you and your mum with the Tudors not that long ago, but long enough ago. And the students were then presenting effectively a lesson to teach that to the parent. And I really love that idea that they were having to think much harder about what it was that was important to being taught. So as a way of encoding, more than necessarily retrieving. Well, there's a really simple strategy. It's sometimes called a brain dump. It's sometimes called blurting. And you have a topic and you all you need is a pen and paper, or you could do it verbally. We'll take my topic of the Treaty of Versailles, for example. Write down everything you can recall from memory about the Treaty of Versailles. Just get it all down. And there's no prompts or there's no cues. This is free recall. This is more than just remembering an individual or a date because actually in the exam, you don't get asked those types of questions. So this allows for this further elaboration. Then the student can bring out their notes and their textbook and compare them and think, oh, I didn't, I didn't include this. I forgot to mention this, or this isn't correct. And this is something that I do a lot with my students in class and encourage them to do at home. It's, it's so easy, especially if you've got a knowledge organizer or you have the list, a specification exam list, and you could just take things off that bullet pointed list, do a brain dump, right? dump everything out of your brain and, and then it's there in black and white, right in front of the student, what they are able to recall. And when they might look at the textbook, they will see things and they, oh, I did know that. So it's that idea again, just because you didn't retrieve it doesn't mean you haven't learned it. But you forgot to retrieve it. So therefore, we're identifying either a gap in our knowledge or something that we haven't been able to retrieve as easily. So there's so many different techniques. Flashcards is one, free recall, past papers. It is about mixing it up and spreading it out. As you said earlier, about not just saying, right, my study today is all about maths. That you're suggesting that actually what's best is to pick smaller periods of time to focus on something quite specific and then move on to something else. Yes. So we refer to this as well as this, the idea of spreading it out is space practice. The idea of mixing up subjects and topics is interleaving. And as I've said, it seems a little bit messy. It seems unorganized. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the study tubers, a group of young people on YouTube. They're really cool. They have loads of followers. And I've been watching some of their videos and I do think they're inspirational. They're young people who are making revision cool and they are really popular and saying I revise and I love my subject and I admire them <laughs> but I did contact them <laughs> and said you don't space out your practice you really should young man <laughs> I don't know how that went down well but that was bothering me about watching these videos because they were giving this advice which you know, they're students and they were saying this is what I did I spend I would have a whole day that was my history day 
and then the whole day that was my science day and it was really frustrating and it, it worried me a little bit because they do have thousands and thousands of followers and they are spreading this message so whilst the bigger picture they are spreading about revision is not a nerdy thing or, or embrace it that's wonderful it still goes to show this misconception about cramming and about blocking, which we really want to avoid. The research I've quoted to you today from the, the 50s and the 60s and the research about spacing and interleaving, Bjork and Bjork, Professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, I think are, are probably the leading academics in the world. Robert Bjork said, you know, using our memory shapes our memory. And that so I could quote, Robert Bjork all day. <laughs> I don't think they have any relation to the Icelandic singer, but they are amazing. And they I can't imagine how frustrating it must be for them carrying out this research, having these research findings years ago, and we are talking some of their research in the 60s, the 70s, and they're still researching now, and it not getting into the hands of teachers and students and parents and this information is so powerful and it really can transform learning. And there's been some research as well that says that regular low stakes quizzing and retrieval will reduce anxiety when it comes to the final exam. Now, there's not that much research, but actually my teacher experience would completely agree with that. When I first embraced retrieval practice, and this was quite a few years ago, I had a year 10 class and it was it was quite new doing retrieval pretty much every single lesson and the flashcards from the start of the year and all these new strategies. And the class were brilliant. They just totally absorbed everything I said. And when they did come to do their exam on that day, I've never felt so confident in my career. And they felt incredibly confident as well. But the sad thing was, and they all did amazing. They did incredible. Their results were just you know phenomenal somebody was predicted a cat 4d and he got an a star and it, you know people it was just it was a combination of factors but retrieval was one of them but yeah the sad thing was is that they were doing that in history the retrieval the spacing and they hadn't done, applied that in their other subjects they just thought and it wasn't specific to history or, or me but at that point other teachers weren't promoting that or aware of that so they were self-testing in history and then in another subject they were highlighting and underlining and I couldn't I couldn't believe that and and when it came to the flashcards they said oh miss we've got all these flashcards in history I'm so glad we did them because I'm spending all weekend writing flashcards for all my other subjects and I thought oh yeah I probably should have told them to do that in other subjects as well so <laughs> yeah I've 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 quote research but I've got the experience and the confidence and the outcomes behind me as well but I think that's what makes this so fascinating and certainly your book I have become evangelical about your book actually um, <laughs> unashamedly so, because actually it does take a wealth of academic research but it's not in such a way that original research that it seems like it's practically useful having sort of read some of your snippets and then thought oh I'll have a bit of a dig deep around that actually no I won't because it's not in it's not in friendly terms it's written by professors seemingly for other professors so 
I wonder then whether it's people like you, and I know that there are other teacher authors as well that are doing similar things and taking this research and then thinking, but how can I apply it in practice? And then sharing that practical awareness with other teachers. And my hope is that it won't be too long before we'll start to see that on the parent side as well, that as teachers are finding out more about how retrieval practice will work and low stakes testing over and the, the higher stakes stuff as well, that actually that'll start to come through to parents. And you mentioned it before uh, about the parent evenings could be much more focused on these practical levels of are you trying these kinds of things at home? Yeah, I delivered a presentation to parents in the evening. It was, of course, optional, really well turned out. The problem was the parents who couldn't make it, they asked for my PowerPoint. And as I said, don't combine text and talk, just pictures of basically icons of the brain. So it's like, uh, that PowerPoint <laughs> without my explanation doesn't really mean much. But then I made a, a guide for parents, which was very simplified and actually academic research getting to grips with it I've really had my struggles something that has helped me are research summaries and there's a research summary that I often recommend for students and parents and that's the work of Professor John Dunlosky strengthening the student toolkit now you can google that and download it as a free pdf and he ranks revision strategies in order of how effective they are so high utility at the top is retrieval and space practice right down at the bottom we have highlighting and underlining now I've made the mistake in the past so I don't know if it's a mistake but I told students that any revision of course is better than no revision and some students really ran with that <laughs> because they said miss I revised I highlighted and I underlined give me a pat on the back because you said any revision is better than no revision no, like, no, really, just, yes, it's true. It, it, you, if you reread and you highlight, it's better than doing nothing. But come on, let's, we, we know we've got this information that says it, it works. So the Dunlosky... Revision methods are not created equal. Absolutely. They really, are. and so it, I'm still taking on this battle of the highlighter with my students. And I think that will be going on for many years. We've got a lot of work to do. But if we can get the parent on our side as well, saying, no, why are you rereading and highlighting? Why aren't you self-testing? Then that will help us considerably. As you said earlier, I think it's one of those things with the, the study grammars and the study tubers. There are young people out there who are promoting studying. And that, I mean, that's got to be a good thing to make it acceptable, if not cool. But absolutely that they're doing it. And some bizarre practices that as a middle-aged man, I just don't get of working next to someone who's recorded themselves working. I don't, I don't see it. I don't understand why, especially if it's sped up. So I'm just watching someone in front of their laptop. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. But if it's encouraging a student to do something, then that sounds great. I guess the danger is these influencers are purporting to have knowledge about how best to study, as opposed to going right back to what you said at the beginning, as opposed to how they like to study best. And they are very different things, aren't they? And also the study tubers, and I do think they're brilliant. Jack Ben Edwards and Jada Jade, incredible. But they got A stars. They're the students who are going to Oxford. We have to be very mindful of this as well. So, what the approaches that they're taking and their backgrounds and all these other factors that is different. And yeah, when I, I did reach out to them and I just said, you know, now 
you, perhaps whether you realize it or not, you have a responsibility. You've got a large following and you're sharing information with students. A research summary about space practice. Do me a favor, <laughs> share that, please, because I can't take yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And do your students, do your followers a, a favor? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if I'm telling my students something and then I found out about the study tubers from my students, and I thought, oh, I, I've never heard of these. You know, let's let's check them out. So then, yeah, if I'm saying one thing, but then somebody with a hundred thousand followers is saying another thing, who you know, and they're a trendy influencer, and I'm the history teacher, <laughs> I don't stand a chance. <laughs> it's difficult. It is difficult to compete, it's very difficult. even for a history teacher. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully things will move in there. But but overall, the bigger picture i'm a huge supporter of them the study tubers yeah absolutely where students can find out about how they can do this self-testing because coming into this i'll confess i was thinking self-testing was the more formal type of stuff not the low stakes stuff as i will forever be calling it and the flashcards aren't the only way and and certainly having looked through some of the resources in your book that actually there are a number of ways in which you can both chunk interleave and, and do all of these kinds of things and make it less intensive which is i think something as parents we're very mindful of at the moment one of the ideas i really liked was to have a jar of different topics maybe in the kitchen and if you're going for breakfast pulling out a question and just sort of asking that flashcard at that time so it doesn't have to be formal it doesn't have to be a time that was absolutely set aside it can just be weaved into the normal family life and it can be really enjoyable people go to a quiz for fun for entertainment and i appreciate it's a completely different context of retrieval practices and about pub quiz trivia but when there's something you can't recall and then you can later recall it the satisfaction how many people get excited when they can answer a question on university challenge and <laughs> mastermind yes i you know there's something really rewarding about that so retrieval practice in itself, again, if you stick with it and you persevere, because it can be disheartening at times when you do a quiz and your score is low and it, it can initially knock your confidence, but keep going with it. And then you will get to the, the satisfaction, the confidence, the motivation, and you will see the benefits and you will see that it works. It is an unfortunate side effect, isn't it? The, in order to find out what gaps there are in your knowledge, you have to have not been able to answer the question, which can knock your confidence. But actually, without doing that, you'll never know what it is that you need to plug. Yeah, exactly. Would you want to be in an exam situation, high stakes, where you realise there's a gap in your knowledge? Or would you rather be at home or in school, recognise a gap in your knowledge, and you've got weeks or months to close that gap? So if you just are rereading and highlighting, it gives a false sense of confidence and familiarity. And But it's it's not useful to us. It won't inform our, our future revision i love lists and crossing things off a list it gives me lots of satisfaction and i encourage my students to do that with retrieval as well but even when they've crossed it off a list it's still worth just coming back to it again and checking but when you can cross something off that list because a number of times you've been able to recall that information that's really satisfying you wouldn't be able to know that from the highlighting and the underlining and then you could be in an exam situation where, oh, I know that, like my dad knew Copenhagen, but you haven't got the time in the exam to just sit there and think, oh, I know it, it's on the tip of my tongue. You want to be able to retrieve it quickly and confidently. Retrieval practice will help you get there. 
Because it's certainly something that you can see as well, can you, that in the in a high pressured environment, such as a high stakes exam, that actually you do hear about people sort of um, freezing. My mind just clammed up. I knew it was in there. And then you get to that point where you think, I know it, but I need to, I can't think about it. It becomes a vicious circle and of actually I can't retrieve it. Whereas, as you said before, you've been through your notes, you've done your retrieval, you're aware of what it is that you know, you can feel confident that you've worked in the right way to get in the exam. And actually, that's that's almost freeing, isn't it? That if you're in there, you feel less pressure and then perhaps easier to access those bits of information that were sat in the in the long term store ready for your exam questions before my retrieval practice book i wrote a book called love to teach and there's a chapter in there about memory and there's a chapter about revision and two of my case studies were written by students students that i taught and i didn't tell them what to write i promise <laughs> and it was that class that i'd said i inherited it i took a year 10 class had them for two years and girl wrote very openly and honestly about anxiety that she would feel with exams and genuinely how regular retrieval helped her with that helped boost her confidence I always say retrieval practice isn't just an academic aspect of school we can link it to pastoral we can link it to well-being and mistakes that some teachers might make with retrieval practice is is if it appears to be high stakes like if they do a quiz and then they report the results back to parents that's high stakes um, or scrutinizing the data, you know, things like that. A little bit of advice I give is because I use Google Forms for a more formal, perhaps end of unit assessment. And I might use multiple choice questions and free recall. But I don't tend to use Google Forms for low stakes quizzing just because my students already sort of have that association with it being an assessment, with it having a grade. So quizzes or Kahoot, different online quizzing tool, I might use more regularly. And there's loads of these quizzing tools that students can use independently at home without the teacher. They can search through topics and do a quiz on their phone. It's enjoyable, give them results. So there's lots of options, but it's the importance of the, the high stakes and, and spacing it out and starting early also has an element of low stakes because obviously the closer you get to the exam, the stakes are rising, aren't they? You can delineate between the benefit to me as a student is the low stakes stuff. I'm, I'm doing this so that I know what I know and I, I know what I don't know. And the high stakes where the result is for someone else. So uh, the exams or end of unit assessments perhaps actually is a more formal piece of grading and results and, and all of that kind of stuff. Retrieval practice was known as the testing effect. We don't call it that now because of the connotations of the word testing. And it is testing, in a sense. And retrieval practice is harnessing the testing effect. And even the language and the terminology. So if I said, as my class walked in, right, we're going to do a test, <gasps> panic, or, oh, we're going to do a Kahoot quiz. Oh, yeah, great. I, I like Kahoot. It's completely you know, different approaches and terminology and different reactions as well so yeah there's a there's a lot to consider in terms of the high stakes nature and and I'm even aware and and actually maybe this might be worth pointing out to parents as well this doesn't happen often but I'm aware of some schools carrying out retrieval practice during detentions because they want to make the best use of detention time now I would advise against this 
because then it looks like we are using retrieval practice as a punishment. And if it's a punishment, how are we expecting students to go and do that at home? So parents definitely don't say, right, you're grounded, do some retrieval practice. (laughs) That's not the approach. We really don't want it to be viewed that way. And as I said, it's, it's not a common strategy, but unfortunately it is happening. And I can see the logic People think, oh, well, it's an effective use of time. We've got the students in detention for half an hour. Let's do that. No, don't do that. Think of something else to do, reflective conversations or something else. But it's not a punishment. It's a powerful learning tool. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like I've learned some really, really valuable lessons. It's important to get the balance right so that our students feel recharged and refreshed going into the last half of term, but equally important that they use the time they have now wisely to make sure that they keep on top of their studies. And what we've just heard from Kate is how we can help our young people work smarter and not, as Kate says, simply harder or longer. Before today, I had a very narrow view of testing. In my mind, it equated more to exam technique and understanding how to cope in the pressure than anything else. But what I think I was looking at was really applied to limited examples of high-stake tests, as Kate explained them, not the full gambit of self-testing, low-stakes retrieval practices. Learning and remembering are something that we do every day, whether casually or deliberately. And when we think about our children studying, The science might not be as interesting to all of us, but how it can be applied practically could be a game changer and therefore vital for all of us. When we think about our children studying, the science might not be as interesting to all of us, but how it can be applied practically could be a game changer. There's a real temptation to see the output of a good revision session as a pile of index cards or highlighted passages in books. And they might have a valuable role in encoding and in learning, but a more productive use of revision time might be challenging that recall. The blurting exercise that Kate talked about sounds like such a simple idea. Take some time to free recall facts and other information about a topic and then compare it with the written notes, identifying what's been missed. That highlights gaps in knowledge stored and also a simple block in retrieval perhaps. We all remember the story, what's the capital of Denmark? And that's that kind of situation where you know it's there, but strengthening the bonds is key to being able to recall. Focusing on those areas of gap will help strengthen memory and aid future recall. I was also really struck by the idea of spacing, something that we've heard in previous podcasts. Starting early and coming back to a topic over time. Also, I loved this idea of interleaving, mixing the topics up rather than blocking. And that's something that appeals to me, certainly. It's easy to recognise that boredom could set in with many students if they just kept plugging away at the same subject for too long. And it's not good for interest levels and can have a knock-on effect to their well-being too. This half-term, and indeed after school and the weekends, it's really important that students use their time wisely. By following some of the techniques that Kate has talked about and being more considered and deliberate about the study technique used, as well as working on retrieval revision, it'll mean that our students will get so much more out of the time that they spend studying. This should make them feel good about carving out valuable downtime for themselves too. Thank you for listening. 
I hope, like me, you found this episode useful and genuinely interesting. If you did, please do take a moment to leave a review and a five-star rating. Of course, also happily encourage you to share the link to this and other episodes with your friends too. It's always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.